0: Hello, and welcome to B2B Revenue Leaders. I'm your host, Dustin Tizik This podcast is brought to you by Testimonial Hero. Your buyers don't really want to hear from you anymore. They really want to hear from their peers. But reference calls don't scale. And let's be honest, we don't read case studies anymore. Testimonial Hero creates strategic video testimonials for you to use throughout your entire buyer's journey. Learn more at TestimonialHero.com. Today, I'm joined by Anthony Pieri, who is a partner at Fletch PMM. We're going to talk about all things product marketing, but specifically, we're going to dive into the fact that people don't really care about benefits, they actually care about features, and why category creation is often the wrong choice. On to the episode. Hey, Anthony, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of things, probably. So product positioning, product marketing, but I want to start with something you said that most marketers might get up in arms a bit or a little bit confused by, which I think is an interesting one, is you said, you know, people don't care about benefits they care about features seems counterintuitive to what I've harped on and many people have. So yeah, let's explain that dive into that one.
1: Yeah. So partially this is kind of a, it's not a fair comment to make because when people say benefits, that means a lot of different things. So we are harping on, when my partner and I talk about this, we're harping on one specific version of benefits. So Mm -hmm. some people who say we promote benefits are actually saying the same thing that I'm saying. It's primarily when people are talking about benefits as ROI, metrics, outcomes, things like that. In that instance, we are saying you should not lead with those things. And there's a giant movement right now, especially in the SaaS world, in this economic environment, where people are trying to sell and the deals are getting killed by CFOs coming into the mix and essentially torpedoing all the progress that you made. And so everyone's saying we need to lead with benefits. We need to talk about ROI. We need to talk about the metrics that we improve. And that we say is fundamentally the wrong approach, especially in the B2B SaaS world. But just to just even back up, my brother works for a medical devices startup. And they sell a specific type of cable that when nurses move beds from room to room, they always yank this cable out of the wall on accident. And so it, eventually the cable has to get replaced all the time. And when you have hundreds of beds, it's, it's a really common problem. So my brother's company, they make these cables that are kind of like MagSafe on, mm-hmm. on a laptop where they're magnetic. And so when you pull it, they just magnetically break apart. And what it does is it prevents all these cables from immediately breaking and having to be replaced all the time. So when he talks to these companies, he's on the sales side of the company. When he comes in, he shows the cable and he holds it in his hands and he says, look, you know that cable that always gets pulled out of the wall and they say, yeah, you know, you have to replace it all the time. Yeah. This one has this magnetic break and it breaks apart and and immediately it solves such an obvious problem in such an obvious way that immediately their eyes light up and they say, I need to get you to meet my boss or we need to go take this over to this department. We need this for every single bet. So it's like It's like taking candy from a baby. He walks in, he demonstrates the feature, and the ROI is so unbelievably obvious that it would almost be an an insult to their intelligence to not show the product, to not show the feature, walk in and talk about, let me tell you the percentage of cables that we could save by using our solution. Let me talk about the benefit. Let me talk about the outcome. You don't care about features you are not you know what I mean that's that's literally mm-hmm. the the vernacular in the marketing world is you don't care about features tell them about the th- these people they don't give a, a rip but that's actually fundamentally especially in startup world that's fundamentally not what people think if you have brand equity if people already know you and they understand what you do and they love you yes you do not need to talk about individual features nike can release a new shoe and you'll buy it without knowing this is how the you know insole is and this is how the all those things right but if you're a startup the way to have the ROI conversation is to show the features that solve very, very obvious pain points. And so like our biggest like mission when we think about product marketing is we're like, can we make SaaS companies as visceral and physical feeling as if I held that cable in my hand and demonstrated to you? Can we do that with SaaS products? And most people do not do that. They they hide what their product is behind, we call it the impenetrable wall of benefits that you'll go on their website and it's increase your revenue, boost your this and 5X your that. And by the end of the page, you're like, I don't even know what it is. When would I use it? Who is it for? Why would I care? I've been hit with a wall of ROI. And so that is the piece that we're fighting against. And I know that's probably a longer answer, maybe kind of rambling, but hopefully that gets across like the sentiment behind what we're saying.
0: No, it does, and that makes a lot of sense. I guess my my question after that then is, maybe I'm judging a lot of products, but I think a lot of products are kind of copycats and don't have that killer feature. And, I mean, you can put Lipstick on a pig a little bit with, with positioning and messaging, but what would your advice be there? Like, if you don't have that standout killer feature like the medical device example, then what? Is it just, you know, think of a better product to build? Or, yeah, ha- where do you go from there?
1: On some level, I think it is a product strategy problem that's being fixed at the level of messaging. And yeah. so a big example, I posted this the other day on LinkedIn, 95% of the startups that we see are actually just analytics products in disguise. And so yeah. most people, my, my hunch behind this is that there's a lot of founders who come out of Google, come out of these like data driven companies and they say, wow, the power of data Having the right data, not siloed, being able to do data analysis is really a strong feature. And so what they do is they create products where they basically say, I've got data in in this silo, data in this silo. I'm going to connect them together. I'm going to add some AI to do some analysis. I'm going to give you insights and recommendations. We've Mm -hmm. seen that product 30 different times in 30 different industries essentially doing the same thing. And what they find is when we say, oh, so you're an analytics platform, they go, oh, no, 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 no. It's a really crowded space. We're not an analytics platform. We're a revenue platform. And you're like, well, what does that mean? And they're like, well, we help you find, uncover new options for revenue or whatever it is. And they always tie it back to these things that they think the executives care about. And then by the time you actually look at the product, you say, wait a minute, there's no generate revenue button in your product. You're a data analytics platform. And who has the pain point the most? It's not the executive. It's it's the, it's the data analysts who are the ones doing all this spreadsheet mashing and trying to pull in data from here and there. So I think a lot of times when we work with companies, we're bringing them to reality of the actual product they've really created. And you can pretend that it's something that it's not and try to sell it. But the only thing that that will do is you're just kicking the ball down the field of like, they're going to be upset later once they've implemented mm-hmm. all these things, and you don't actually deliver anything that you promised. They don't see the big revenue bumps and ROI lifts that you were giving them, and they say, "Oh wait, this is essentially." Or even further down the sales cycle, when they're getting close to the end, they'll be, "Wait, this is literally just like you just give me a dashboard. You just tell me these, and then they're going to kill the deal anyway." So it's like, be be upfront about what you actually do, what you actually solve. Lead with it, and if no one is interested. Try to maybe go back to the drawing board of the product (laughs) and try to figure out. Well, is there a different group who cares about this more? Is there something we could change in the product strategy? Right. Like, don't it's obscuring it is not going to solve the problem. You're just kicking it down the field, and it's going to become a bigger problem later.
0: Yeah, and I think the one point you mentioned there too is think about whose problems you're solving with it. Because I find that disconnect as well. Even as a marketer who writes messaging and positioning and has to do that a lot, you it's hard to write to the individual level sometimes and be specific. But I find that's what actually hits home the most. Like anytime I got feedback on LinkedIn ads we've ran, for example, it was that spoke exactly to something I was feeling and was incredibly specific. It wasn't, you know, I'm going to 10x your ROI. So how do you get those insights, I guess? And I mean, maybe the answer is obvious. Talk to customers, but there's got to be more to it than that. Well, honestly, people always say talk to customers, right? And they don't They just say that.
1: It's like a truism, right? And that's actually not even always that helpful because if you're earlier in your startup career, you have a lot of customers from different segments. So if you just start talking to customers willy-nilly, this segment's going to ask for this set of features, this segment's going to ask for this set of features, this one, and they're all going to have different pain points. And so it's not even going to necessarily help you just talking to customers. You almost have to choose a segment or a set of segments that you're maybe testing and say, go deep into their problem. So like, if we're talking B2B, B2B, you sell in nine times out of 10, you're selling in through a department. So are you going in through sales? Are you going in through marketing? Are you going in through customer success? And so what a lot of people will do is they'll say, well, my product needs all of those groups to buy in in order to get value from this solution. And this is a lot of those analytics companies, right? Mm-hmm. We got to get the sales data in. We got to get the marketing data. It's a long time to value. And they say, well, who would actually be the decision maker who would oversee all these things? That's someone in the C-suite. So maybe our buying champion is the C-suite. And it's like, no, if you think, especially if you're a large, you're going after a mid market or larger mid market or enterprise company, you think that the CMO is going to be walking around, you know, banging on the doors for procurement and legal and all the different decision makers, they're going to be doing all that to, to buy your software You are living in a fantasy land, right? They are too busy to be going around all the hoops to get it. So your buying champion is likely going to be in one of those departments. So if you think about like what is the most correct entry point into the business, assuming you do want to expand and do all this upsells and cross sells into the other departments, at least if you pick a department, not even necessarily an individual, but if you just said, what would it look like for me to sell into this sales department or sell into this marketing department? What are the problems that my product actually solves in the day-to-day lives of these people in that sales department? And you anchor your messaging at that level. It doesn't mean like I'm only going after senior marketing managers. Like it could literally just be like the performance marketing team or something specific enough that anyone in that group, if they saw your message, they would be like, that's me. I have that exact problem. And we often find that like getting to that level of specificity is scary, but like that's what makes marketing effective. Like A lot of people who come from sales-led backgrounds and try to understand marketing, they get wrapped around the axle because they're saying, well, I usually do discovery. I do discovery in the sales calls to figure out where the pain point is. And then I kind of position the product in the moment for that specific problem. Well, oh, yeah, we can do that. We're, and that ends up pulling your product in all these different directions. So like putting a stake in the ground and saying we're positioning ourselves for this type of department and we're not going to do discovery because marketing, you can't do discovery. You're essentially putting something out there And if people resonate with it, then they're going to click your ad or they're going to go to your page or whatever. And so it's we often find at least choosing either a specific department to target and and testing around it, or sometimes you can target a specific use case that spans across multiple departments. But that often relies on tactics like SEO, where it's like, I'm looking for the best way to schedule meetings and maybe Calendly pops up, right? That could be a freelancer. It could be a marketer. It could be a, a, you know, a, single business owner, but they all have such a specific use case that your product can pop up in the mix. So either anchoring on a use case or a specific team can get you to that level of specificity to see if like this even resonates with anyone.
0: Yeah. And I think the tie there between product, like actual product, product management, developers, and marketing needs to be tight for that reason. Because I've seen so many products that try to boil the ocean, be for everyone, and then it's this massive bloated product. And No one loves it. Like you can't be for everyone. So I think tying that and those products suck to market. They're really difficult to come up with positioning and messaging. So I think there's a nice interplay there where I think marketing has to get closer to product because sometimes product marketing is more come up with the specs and, you know, map it all out, which it needs to be way more than that. I think
1: 100% and if you watch like Apple's Vision Pro demo, That's like some of the best product marketing you'll see. They're showing the product and showing exactly which problems each of the different features solve for the end user, right? Mm -hmm. You're sitting in a room. You want to watch a movie on a big screen, but your TV is pretty small. So you sit, you put on the headset, and it creates a giant screen. And, And I'm watching the product, and I'm seeing exactly what the benefits would be without them having to tell me. Like I made a joke once on one of my posts or something. It was a picture of a shoe, and it was like people buy the shoe. They don't buy, you know, 120% walking increase speed or something, right? Like efficiency yeah. quotient or something. So, so to, to your point, marketing and product getting close together in the early days is really, really important. When you get bigger, it kind of becomes a lot of marketing becomes brand recognition. Yeah. So you're just like once you're, I don't know, I was listening. Who was I listening to? Like it was some podcast I was listening to, and there was some ad for like I can't remember it was like microsoft or oracle or some giant company and it's just Mm -hmm. trying to remind you that oracle exists so it was like you don't like once you get big enough you're not really doing product marketing when you have so many different products and platforms and all these different segments but in the early days of a startup you really are doing all of your marketing kind of has to be product marketing because if you can't get people to buy into the product that you're trying to sell you're never going to find product market fit right like you you're not going to find brand market fit. Without first having found product market fit, if that makes sense.
0: For sure. Yeah. Unless you have, you know, $200 million to, yeah. to throw at it and burn off the jump, then maybe you can do it. Or and then if you're something
1: doing a moonshot product, like you're, you know, trying to colonize yeah. Mars or something. And that product's <laughs> not going to exist for 100 years, but you're going to take the VC money now and figure yeah, it out.
0: The, the, the Elon Musk strategy, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is
1: not a good one for the rest of us and this planet, probably. Yeah.
0: Totally. Cool. And then one thing we kind of, you know, you, I think mentioned around it when you were talking about differentiation and positioning, everyone wants to create a category and come up with a new name now. Like you said, a lot of them are analytics platforms or something else. So let's talk through that. I mean, in some cases, it makes sense and the odd company has nailed it. Drift kind of being the example that everyone always goes back to. But what suggestion would you have then instead? Like instead of category creation?
1: Yeah. I mean, you can... The thing is that category creation is a really hard thing to pull off. And a good modern example right now is product-led sales platforms. So Mm -hmm. product-led sales platforms have all been popping up all over the place. People are creating thought leadership around it. There's conferences being started. And even with all of that, a lot of the product-led sales companies are not calling it product-led sales anymore. They're pivoting to other things. So that category, which had all these different people diving in, really trying to put their best foot forward has failed to really take hold, especially in the enterprise. Mm-hmm. And so people are now calling it revenue data platform and and revenue. I can't even remember. They're all like revenue related, which is like, you. to me, I'm like, you're kind of throwing away all this effort over the last five years of category creation that was seemed like it was getting close to winning. So like if all those people are failing with tens of millions, hundreds of millions of VC dollars can't get that category to solidify, the chances that you are going to create the next big category are so infinitesimally low that it's like it just doesn't for me it doesn't feel like a worthwhile exercise to me it's better to position yourself in an existing category that gives people a reference point but then just show how you're so much better how you're 10 times better and highlight the limitations of the category with all of your most differentiating features so like even you know they they called the first car the horseless carriage like that was Mm -hmm. how Henry Ford first explained it he gave a a a piece and then eventually if you find the level of success that you are hoping to get you may end up creating a category on the side right like it may just happen that people start calling it automobiles and other people start making them and it creates this whole thing and and the the market kind of determines this is a new category for you like i don't think i could be wrong this this actually could be wrong i don't think uber or lyft and maybe they did, came up with the phrase ride-sharing. They may have, but to me, it was like when they got on the scenes, they were positioning in the taxi category, right? Like, we're, Mm -hmm. we're your own private driver or something like that was the original tagline. So it's way better, in my opinion, way faster to give people a reference point and then pick a reference point that really makes you shine, not one that makes you worse. So like even my partner and I, we were trying to decide, should we call ourselves an agency or a consultancy? And we do do hands on work, which kind of puts us in this middle spot. We could have tried to invent a category, some new thing that doesn't exist, and then no one would know what we did for the next yeah. five years while well, we were trying to create this category. We're not taking, we're a service business. So we're not taking VC dollars. It's probably not going to work. If we call ourselves an agency, people will expect that we're going to do custom work, that we're going to do lots of different things. Uh, for them that will maybe have people who work for us. That's not what we do at all. If we position ourselves as a consultancy, people will expect that we'll have like a process that we work through. They won't be expecting that we actually help them do some of the final deliverables. So we end up being able to say we're like a consultancy, but we actually help you do the work. So it's like, oh, interesting. These consultants don't just come in, give me advice from their armchair and then leave. They actually do some of the hands on work with us, which helps us get this win. So for us, we were like, that category is better for us even though there isn't a perfect match for a productized, product marketing, semi-consultancy, semi-agency piece.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's kind of, there's hints of like Andy Raskin's framework and April Dunford's framework and a whole bunch of these kind of tied together there. I think to me the main thing is you didn't really pick an enemy with consultancy, but you know, let's be real, most people don't like consultants because they don't do the work. Mm-hmm. So that's A big benefit you see a lot of companies popping up to go back to analytics that are subtly dumping on google analytics because ga4 kind of sucks and google analytics isn't that good it's just pervasive so it's you know picking that enemy or reference point like you said and then going from there it sounds super easy it's always a process and incredibly hard to do in real life so you know we don't have to go through the whole framework and what you suggest but maybe baby steps how do you start planning that out Yeah, so usually it's like
1: what we try to do is we anchor. Like Andy Raskin, he talks a lot about like the old way and new way, and he kind of starts at the level of societal shifts, right? Like user behavior has changed or buying behavior has changed, and now we're in this like new era. And the companies who get this new era, they win. Mm -hmm. That messaging really works when you're talking to decision makers. Definitely does less work for the initial champion who you're trying to convince at the level of product marketing. So when we see like, how do we fit in with Andy's framework? We would say our messaging is more for the person experiencing a very, very specific pain in their day-to-day life that you can come in as a savior and say, hey, we can get rid of that pain for you with this specific set of features or capabilities. That person then has to take you up the chain and then some decision maker is likely going to have to approve this big expensive software purchase and in Mm -hmm. that conversation is where you talk Andy Raskin right hey you're trying to become an innovative company old companies are doing it this way here's a new way so all that piece so for us when we're trying to think of the product category we're using it through the lens of the champion which is usually a couple levels down maybe it's a director or a manager sometimes a VP but even that is usually not the case it's usually someone lower Mm -hmm. and we try to say what product categories are they currently using to solve this this problem? And likely they're stringing together multiple different things. So if they're managing, let's say they're managing some sort of workflow, maybe they use a project management tool, they use a communication tool like Slack, and they use like a calendar tool. So if you have some sort of new invention that helps in this model, does it make sense to call them a calendar that can also do communication and project management? Does it make sense to call it a project management thing that also can do these other pieces and so you kind of just evaluate across the uh, like the solutions that they're using today in their day-to-day life and say which one of them would make the most sense as like we're the bmw upgrade to this and we can actually solve these other problems and so it's sort of a prioritization exercise but yeah we anchor everything because we're talking to the champion it's less of what are people doing in the old way and it's more like what are they doing right now and what are your people doing like because that's the the people, it's almost like a an infomercial. Back in the day, you'd watch an infomercial late at night, and it would be like someone's you know taking their pots and pans out of a drawer and they're throwing them on the ground. And it's like we have this new organization system, that, you know. So it shows them in the problem that they're experiencing, um, or the other one I always get is like the Instagram ads that I get. It's like when you're trying to put your shoes on and you have to bend down to grab the back. Now these shoes, you could just slide your feet in, and, and it's like it's always like a current problem you're facing today, paired with a solution. That is very much current way and then the, the solution. So figuring out like what category in the current way that they do things makes the most sense is usually a decent starting point of figuring out where you want to put yourself.
0: Yeah, I think you went pretty much full circle there back to the beginning example where it's a very visceral thing when you're talking about a daily problem. A societal shift is hard to conceptualize, especially with, take marketing manager, right? Who I've been in that role. You're busy as hell doing like you're just trying to stay alive and stay afloat and get things done more efficiently so yeah i think yeah that's an interesting way to approach it and selling up i feel like that's growing more traction now mostly because say director level up are just inundated with messaging and pitches and my inbox is insane because of that so you know that shift up kind of works there so let's say you know you've got your champion on board and you need to transition that to the big picture messaging, any tips on how to really arm and drive that champion? Because I find those are the easiest deals to close. You have a champion, they're fighting for you, but you need to arm them and give them give them something to tell the story rather than just bringing you in.
1: Yeah, and it's going to be obviously very product to product, but a lot of it is, have you done the work in the back end to think through what do the other decision makers care about and how can I give the champion the best tools to either have them sell it to them internally or get the meeting, right? And a lot of that becomes really sales specific tactics. But I love the example of Reforge. So Reforge is the product management, product strategy, growth strategy, Mm -hmm. cohort based and sometimes courses, right? That they upskill people in, in tech. And so if you apply for Reforge, you get in and then they send you the bill. If you don't pay right away, if you wait, you'll get an email from them that says, hey, we saw you didn't pay if you need help selling this to your manager, send them this email template and they'll be like, you can rewrite it for yourself and add your own details. But it's essentially giving the ROI message. It's like, Hey, other companies that have invested in this upskilling, have seen this metric improve this metric improve because the higher you get up the chain, the less you're in day to day problems. And the more that you are just looking at numbers moving around, right? This is trending in the wrong direction. How are we going to get that up? This is, you know, and so, if you can help tell that ROI story to the decision makers and arm the champions with those types of things, because essentially like the other decision makers, they're likely never going to be as invested in the solution as the champion is. And they're looking for reasons to kill it. So it's almost like ob- objection handling, preemptive objection handling, right? Hey, we really, we think the solution really help us in the marketing department. And, you know, I know we're money's tight right now, but we've actually, you know, we and then you give them the message of like companies that use this actually have seen like revenue go up in this area and that area and the champion could care less about those things but their boss might care and so giving them that ammo kind of usually is the best way to do it rather than publicly positioning your company around what the decision maker cares about who will never be looking for your solution they'll never come on your website they'll never interact with you unless the champion brings it to them and the champion will never interact with you if you lead with ROI and increasing revenue and all that stuff yeah. that the the champion wouldn't actually care about because they're busy, they're in the day to day, and they're trying to solve these specific problems.
0: Yeah, and I think given you know where we're at, like you said, everyone is leaning into ROI, and that, that's kind of the go-to. Money's tight, let's do ROI. Cost of an action as well, which I I feel like is a little bit closer to the end user. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like a good time to actually stand out and you know do it this way rather than get inundated with. I don't know how many emails I get that are five x, hundred times, you know, three hundred percent gain, and I kind of just think it's all made up numbers. And maybe I'm a skeptical marketer. No, Um, you you are the norm. And this was actually it was really funny. This is a a short anecdote, but I yeah,
1: there was an like earlier on, like maybe like maybe three or four years ago, we had this idea. Me and some of my siblings had this idea, and I thought it was this massive business opportunity, and so I was trying to convince my siblings to go in on this business idea with me. So I was like, listen we're going to make this amount of money in the first year, this amount of money in the second year. And they were not interested. And I literally was, I was complaining to my one sibling and I was like, do they just not care about the money? Do they not, are they not motivated by success? And she said, no, they just don't believe you. They don't think that (laughs) it's going to happen and that you're going to make all this money and that anything is going to come through. And I was like, the biggest barrier for most people is the believability piece. You can throw out ROI numbers till the cows come home and, and they're just not going to, They're not going to care or believe you until they understand the what and the how. Another example I like to give is the ice bath challenge or not challenge the ice bath like for health reasons. So you got all these people online who are saying, if you want to improve your sleep, you need to go in an ice bath every day for five to 10 minutes or whatever the amount is. And that's such a far jump of like sitting in ice. I'm going to sleep better eight, you know, 12, 14 hours later. Doesn't make any sense. So the thing that convinces them is when Andrew Huberman, the neuroscientist guy, gets on a podcast and talks for two hours about all the biology of how the ice bath does X and Y. And then you start to think, maybe it really will give me that ROI of better sleep. So the Mm -hmm. how and the what are what bridges the gap to make people believe the ROI. So usually if people are giving you all these ROI objections, you haven't convinced them of the what and the how. And it's like a lag measure of like, you need to fix this higher up. It's not an issue of, well, my ROI numbers aren't compelling enough. It's They probably are compelling enough, but the people just don't believe you.
0: Yeah. And as marketers, that's like the least sexy stuff to try to communicate is, what does it actually do? What is your product actually? So I get why they do that. I've been guilty of that as well of trying to make it, you know, more intriguing, more provocative. But sometimes you just got to tell them what it is and what it does and why they should care. Mm -hmm. So I think Anthony went full circle there all around, you know, I, I love the example you mentioned at the start of your brother with the very physical, you know, physical thing to show. I know you have a bunch of frameworks online. You talk a bunch about this on LinkedIn. So if our guests want to learn more, connect with you, where should they go?
1: Yeah. Easiest thing would be give me a follow on LinkedIn. You could shoot me a direct request. You know, I add essentially everyone, unless you're like visibly trying to sell me something <laughs> you know, like, Hey, here's my <laughs> web development services. And I'm like, we don't have a, really any web development needs. So anyone who reaches out, I'll connect. If you comment on any of my stuff, I usually comment back to everyone. So I'm trying to be very uh, accessible for everyone. Mm -hmm. And then if you really wanted to get, like, the summary of everything we think about product marketing, uh, we have this Notion database that we've been selling that has, I think, like 180 entries in it with all these different frameworks and downloadable Figma templates. That's basically organized by category. Hey, you can see what we think about positioning, or if you're trying to make your website better, here's what we think about website, how that connects with positioning and things like that. So that's probably the, the easiest, like, actual product that would give you some some insights So we just have that hosted on our linkedins me and my partner
0: okay awesome so i'll include those links uh in the show notes for everyone listening and anthony thanks for joining me talking about product marketing and yeah appreciate it definitely thanks so much for having me thanks for listening to this episode of b2b revenue leaders my key takeaway really is just that simple and specific messaging is almost always your best approach As a marketer, it's easy to get caught up in wording and phrasing and and trying to get it too fancy and too sexy with your messaging. But in reality, your buyers just want to know what you do and what's in it for them. So sometimes less is more. Keep it simple, stupid. All those cliche phrases might be true in this case. So if you enjoyed this episode, hit the little follow or subscribe button in your podcast player so you get pinged when our next episode drops. And we'll be back every Tuesday with a new episode.